Amen. Well, thank you all for being here. My name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor of Vertical Life Church for those of you that are new. And uh, we have a philosophy here at VLC. We believe everyone matters to God. That means you matter. And I know that I, from time to time, need to hear that, need to believe that truth. Because sometimes this world can be so hard, can be so uh, discouraging. And sometimes if you look back at past mistakes and things that maybe have gone on in your life, you can feel like you don't matter. But if you caught anything through the songs that we sang, and the reason why we sing is because our God in heaven proved on the cross of Jesus Christ that we matter. That our God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus said he came to give you life and life more abundantly. And we thank God for the life that we have in Jesus Christ. And I thank you all for being here to share in what God is doing at Vertical Life Church. Uh, we, from time to time, go through different teaching series. So we'll, we'll take a subject or, or an issue and we'll search the scriptures to kind of see how uh, God communicates what we should think, what we should believe, how we should live, so that we can live that blessed life that Jesus came to give through trusting in faith. And uh, right now, we're going through a series called Re. We started it last week, so we're only in week two of our mini-series. And this is really to kind of go back and recapture the vision that God has for our church. Uh, last week's message was called Revision. And that we're not talking about going back and changing things or revising things unless it's necessary. What we're talking about is re-seeing what God has already spoken recapturing this vision of what God has called us to be as a church. And I believe God has called Vertical Life Church to be something great. I, I do. I believe it. And in my time of prayer, as I was studying for this message and just seeking God's heart on what his will was for our church and seeking the Holy Spirit, uh, he was giving me visions of, of what he wanted the church to become. And I would hear the Spirit speak of this ministry he wanted to cultivate here at Vertical Life Church, and I shared that vision with you, what I, what I believe in my heart that God wants to produce or create in our church and in our community. But I want to make something very, very clear. It's not this whole thing that we're doing, this ministry, the vision that God has given us, it's not about us. It's not. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about having a big church or the coolest and latest and greatest type of church. No, it's about living in and through the power of his Holy Spirit. It's about being the very thing that he called or died and created us to be. Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building something. He's creating something. And he intends for us to be a great light in this community, and the way he wants us to do that is to engage people where they are and lead them to becoming fully developed followers of Jesus Christ. That is our mission. But if we are in this just to have a big, cool church, and really, in this day and age, that's kind of the thing, right? When, when you look for a church, you kind of look for modern, you kind of look for uh, kind of, you know, things that appeal to really your flesh. It's not really as much a spiritual thing. I mean, we'd like to say, you know, we, it's, it's about the teaching and it's about this and that. But really, if we analyze our hearts in this day and age, we look for programs, we look for ministries, we look for style of dress, we look for how hip the pastor looks. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm never wearing skinny jeans 
ever. I don't even think they make them in my size, so I'm not even going to try. But that's kind of what we look for. If you're growing up in church culture, especially in our nation, any length of time, we, we kind of look for that first to see what would attract us to that ministry. But if we're in this to have a big, cool church, guess what? We'll be defeated before we start. We'll be defeated. But if we're in this to pursue the heart of God, we will be successful every time. Because we have a promise in Psalm 37, verse 4, that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, if you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the very desires of your heart. This means, church, that if we find great pleasure in our God and King, if we find great pleasure in knowing the Savior and believing in Him who was crucified for our sins, if we find great pleasure in the filling of the Spirit and God's presence and power within us, if this is what we find great pleasure in, He will give us that desire every time. He will give us himself. Every time we gather in this building together, we don't gather for religious purposes. We gather to encounter the very presence of God, to be immersed in his heart and to discover his will for our lives. And the thing is, is that our God is so big, there's always more of him that you can discover. You will never get to the point where you have discovered all of God. You know, it's kind of like a God buffet. It just keeps coming. And you can have all you can eat and more. If we're in this mission to honor the Lord, to grow in his love, to live through the power of his Holy Spirit, and to help God help others to encounter his love by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. To find their true purpose. To find why God created them. You know, our world struggles with that. Why do I exist? What is the meaning of existence? Well, God created them for a purpose. The Bible says before the foundation of the world, God planned a purpose for every heart and every soul. There is a purpose for every life. And God has designed the church to help him help others encounter his love by trusting in Jesus Christ. And if that's what we're all about, if that's what we're here to do, then there is no limit to what he will do in and through us. There's no limit. And as I stated last week, I believe God has a big plan for us. I believe it's far-reaching. I believe it's international in nature. I believe his plan is to raise us up as a significant presence over this region, to have a significant impact over this region, where not only can we support other ministries getting started or, or that maybe fall into hard times and provide a covering over these churches and ministries, but I believe God has specifically, specifically chosen us to be a leader in the fight against the enemy, to free people from oppression and to deliver them from the bonds and chains that they're wrestling in, that they're stuck in. That we are to be the frontline leaders to take back the ground that the enemy has stolen in the life of the people in our community. And to take back the ground he's occupied for a long time. And I believe even now God is pouring out his spirit to make this possible. Like I stated last week, the church is not a building. This church is not a building. It's a movement. And you and I are part of a move of God. 
a move of God that's being birthed right here in this city, right here in this high school auditorium. And again, last week we talked about revision and, and, and just recapturing God's vision for our ministry. And as I was meditating on this topic, as I was meditating on this series, really before it became a series, just asking God, God, what is your word for our church? What is your will? What do you want to say? What do you want to communicate? God gave me a word leading up to developing this as a a series to kind of take us through this time. And the word God gave me for this series is the word reset. Somebody say reset. Reset. When I think of the word reset, I really kind of, I thought of two really uh, examples. A couple of things came to mind. First was bowling. You know, when you go to the bowling alley, if you're there with some friends or your family, each person, you know, you got to set everybody's name up in the, in the screen, and, and each person gets a turn to bowl. But if you are to have a chance of winning the game or even the chance of getting a perfect score, which I think God has told me will never happen in my life. I'm the worst bowler you've ever met. But, but if, if you even would like an opportunity to get a perfect score or win the game, then the pins have to be re-what? Set every time. A bowler bowls, and then the pins are reset. The next bowler bowls, and the pins are reset. In order to get to the end, in order to get to the win, sometimes something has to be reset, and sometimes it has to be reset again and again and again to keep you on track to where you want to go. I also think about... Back in the day when, when video games really were first coming out, uh, the kids these days do not understand the bewilderment and the amazement that was the Nintendo Entertainment System. We're talking eight bits of colorful glory, where, where the days of, of green and black screens were gone, and we actually had color and sound effects. That, that, that were really awesome. I remember Super Mario Brothers. But the thing about the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES for short, for those of you that are tracking with me, this was before memory cards and smartphones. And the majority of games you played did not save your progress. I think I began to lose hair when I was a child over this problem. But when you'd play this game, and and you are even towards the the end of the game, where you're maybe getting ready to beat the game. I know, like, with the Super Mario Brothers, once you hit the warp and you get to, like, level six, and you kind of maneuver your way, kind of cheat your way through the game, you can get to the last level, and then all of a sudden, the screen freezes on you, and and the, 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 the theme music stops being all happy and starts being one tone that is the most annoying thing ever. And now you have a problem because all of the progress you had in the game is now in jeopardy. And, and there are only a couple of things you could do. You, you, could, you could implement the first method, which was the light love tap on the top of the machine. Sometimes that would jog it back and, and you could go back to playing. But if that didn't work, you, you had to then go through the process of resetting the game. And there are a couple of methods. You, you, you could do the hurricane method, which means you take the game, the cartridge out of the device. It was a cartridge, not a disc. And you'd have to blow profusely back and forth in vigorous fashion, hoping to dislodge any form of lint or dust, and then putting the game back in to see if it would come back on. Sometimes it did. And then other times when that didn't work, then you're in really panic mode. 
So you have to implement really the third method, which was the dual approach where you put the game in and then take another cartridge and slightly stick it in the, the top, just barely depressing the cartridge so that it didn't over-depress and it would maybe finally catch and you could go back to playing your game. There's multiple ways to reset. But the thing was, is that when that system froze, there were only a handful of remedies that you could employ to solve the problem. And sometimes when life requires a reset, when you end up frozen in a space of life, maybe you've got to a place where you just don't know what decisions to make. Maybe you are come to a roadblock in your job and you're like, well, do I stay here? Do I look for something else? Sometimes it requires a reset. And depending on how we got stuck or when we got stuck, depending on the situation that preventing you from moving forward would determine what type of reset you needed to employ. And this is why it's so important for us as believers in Jesus Christ to revision, because the Bible is full of vision. The Bible is full of words for your life personally and both corporately for the church. God has already spoken what his will for our church is. Did you know that you can flip to the book of Revelation and see the end of time? You can see the very end of time when Christ returns in his glory and the church is set up as kingdom of priests in the earth and we reign with Christ over the earth. Did you know that his will, his vision for what will be is already in place? There's full, the Bible is full of vision. And it's why it's so important that we revision to go back and revisit what God has already spoken so that we can realign our hearts and be faithful to what he has promised because God will never fail to accomplish what he has already started. God will never fail. It doesn't matter how many mistakes we've made. It doesn't matter how many wrong decisions. God will never fail to complete what he has started. This is why it's important that we study the word of God, that we read, that we study what his word has to say. We ask the Lord to speak to us as we open the word and engage his presence in the Bible. It's important that we seek the Lord in prayer and commune with the Holy Spirit, that we learn to listen for his voice and allow him to speak to our hearts and to our minds. It's important because sometimes physical reality and spiritual reality are not in sync. Sometimes our physical reality and what God has spoken, what his vision is for our lives, are not in agreement with one another. This is why Jesus prayed, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is what? In heaven. Sometimes what's going on in heaven is out of sync with what's going on in earth. Really, it's the other way around. What's going on in earth is out of sync with what is going on in heaven. Earthly reality and spiritual reality don't always agree and since we are stuck in the physical reality, it's easier for us to see with physical eyes. We talked about this a little bit last week, that for us as believers in Christ, we are to be seeing with spiritual eyes, not just physical eyes. But when we're stuck in the physical, we see more easily in the physical than we do in the spiritual. And what we see oftentimes determines what we will choose to believe. But you know, it was Jesus who said that blessed are those who see me. But even more blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. Why did he say that? It's because those who don't see, those who come after that don't see Jesus with their eyes, they will be not just seeing, but they'll be seeing with their hearts and not with their eyes. 
And they will be living as an act of faith. They will be living in, uh, on faith, which is pleasing to God. And faith is the very essence of what motivates God's heart to pour out a blessing. When you see with spiritual eyes, when you see without seeing, you are living by faith, and that is what God is pleased to bless. That is why it is more blessed for those who do not see and yet believe. So through this series in faith, we're going back to what God's spoken over our ministry. We're receiving it again by faith, knowing God, who is merciful and faithful, will complete the work that he has started. We gave a snapshot last week of the vision of what God wants to do and wants us to become in this community. And now we all have to decide what are we going to do with that snapshot. What are we going to do with it? Are we just going to wait around for it to happen? Or are we going to chase after it in faith? Are we going to seek the Lord? Hebrews 11.6 says it's impossible to please God without faith. But he rewards those who diligently, who sincerely seek after him. If we're going to press in and walk into this vision that God has spoken over our church, it's going to take a full commitment to the vision to see this thing through. It's not just going to happen by happenstance. It's going to take commitment. And I know the, in this day and age especially, when we say the word commitment, you know, it, it's easy for instantly us to have kind of this tension inside. Maybe people begin to sigh and eyes begin to roll and the thought of not another volunteer opportunity got all this stuff going on, you know, don't ask me to, to do that, you know. I don't want to miss another service because, because it is so vital to my Christian life that I'm in every Sunday morning service. Don't ask me to, to serve in any other area because I can't miss the Sunday morning service. These tensions and these thoughts and these feelings begin to just come to the surface. But here's the deal. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have all been called together to be a church, to be a representation of the body of Christ here in this place in this appointed time. It's not just this group over here and I'm over here. No, we are all called. And that means it is time for us to begin living as citizens of heaven, not citizens of Clio, not citizens of Michigan, not even citizens of the United States of America. There is a greater calling. There is a greater citizenship. There is a greater identity that all of us have been called to through Jesus Christ, and that is our citizenship in heaven. We need to be living like citizens of heaven where God shapes our priorities rather than the citizens of earth where we live for status quo and just add God in on the weekends. It's going to take full surrender to who we are in Jesus, not just with the extra time and resources we have on the weekend, but it's going to take prioritizing the kingdom of God in our everyday life to prioritize his kingdom above all, top priority. Jesus said if you seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness, then everything you need will be added unto you. He's desiring a people who will seek him, prioritize him, place him at his first place in their life because he is the Lord our God and there shall be no other gods before him. His place is first and priority. And he has called his people to place the kingdom in that same place. It starts with beginning with your personal relationship with God. Do I have a daily time where I am communing with God, learning, soaking in the word, allowing him to speak to my heart? Am I growing in my relationship with God? Am I spending time to know God more in my everyday life? Am I living my life as an ambassador of heaven? 
Do I wake up with this reality that my, my role today is not to do my job or, or, or to do the things that I get preoccupied with doing, but my role today is to introduce people to Jesus Christ? Is that what I'm waking up with? Is that my identity today? A citizen of heaven gets their identity by whose they belong to, not by the occupation that they work. You see, Paul the Apostle, he was a tent maker. It's not very commonly known. We don't often talk about this, but Paul, he made tents. He went place to place as a missionary. This is what we think of. But in order to fund his ministry, he made tents to to, to fund the work that he was doing. You see, at the core, Paul was not a tent maker. He was an apostle. He was a missionary. He was a church planner. He lived for the sake of the gospel. In Romans 1, 15 through 17, Paul writes to the church of Rome. He says, I'm eager to come to you in Rome, too, to preach the good news. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. And this good news makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Paul understood that God saved him to send him on a rescue mission. God didn't just save Paul so he could have fire insurance and escape judgment. No, God saved him to send him on a rescue mission. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He did not let the expectations of others diminish his calling. No, God saved him to send him. And if you're a believer here today, God has also saved you to send you. He has saved you to send you. He hasn't saved you for fire insurance. He saved you to send you on a rescue mission. There are people surrounding us everywhere you look that are dying every day without the forgiveness of their sins. There are people that you can see every day suffering from the oppression of the evil one. There are people all around walking in spiritual blindness who do not understand and cannot understand the truth about this life and that there are consequences for their actions for their decisions, for their faithlessness. And Jesus chose you to be the one that he wants to use to set them free. That's a citizen of heaven. Romans 10, 14 says, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe him? And how can they believe him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them he has saved you to send you? The gospel is the power of God at work in the hearts of those who believe. And you're the one he's commissioned to tell. But the problem in our day is that unlike Paul, we have become ashamed of the gospel. And we've shrunk back. We've let the world inform us of what's important rather than who we are inform us of what's important. If you look at the church nationally, internationally, the trends and things that we see, it's easy to see. We've lost what's important. We let the world inform us of what's important rather than what Jesus has done for us on the cross inform us of what's important. And the enemy has been able to rob us of the boldness in our witness because of that. Can't tell people about Jesus at work. I might get fired. Okay, God's your provider. 
Can't tell this relative about Jesus. They'll just reject me and walk further away. I remember a day even in my own life at a, a job I, you know, several years ago. I was talking to another believer in a workplace, and he asked me, when did you know the Savior? When did you come to know Jesus? And instantly I began to feel afraid of who might overhear what we're talking about, not because I didn't believe, but because I was afraid of what other people might think. And it prevented me from being bold in my witness and saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We show that we're ashamed of the gospel by the way we live our lives, by the way we prioritize the kingdom. We show we're ashamed of the gospel by how we refuse to walk in faith and we let fear dictate who and when we talk to about the Lord. You see, one of the core values of Vertical Life Church is being an unrelenting witness because this is so important for the kingdom of God. The gospel matters. It matters. Every soul of every person matters. And it's up to us who know the truth to continue to preach the gospel until everyone has heard and everyone believes. It's that important. But you know what? The struggles that we face and these cultural tendencies that we have, the, the, the things that, that, that influence our faith and our boldness, it, it actually happened. Something happened in history uh, a long time ago that is something we're still wrestling with today that began to change the mindset of believers and create unhealthy culture in Christianity and in, in the practice of Christianity worldwide, especially, I, we can see this right here in America, even in this modern time, there is an unhealthy uh, mindset that was motivated by a, really a spiritual re, uh, religious error or a spirit of religious error. In the year 313 AD, something extremely significant happened in history. It was a time where the emperor of Rome, Constantine, uh, created an edict or issued an edict, the Edict of Milan, which accepted Christianity to be legal in Rome, which essentially opened up Christianity to all the known world. Ten years later, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And during this transition of the freedom of Christianity to now that this Roman uh, just adoption of Christianity, Christianity in this transition went from a personal faith to a political faith. And the center of belief stopped being focused on a personal relationship with God among a community of believers to uh, and having a personal mission to share the gospel to now all of spiritual life being centered in and around a church building. Where believers used to, if you start in the book of Acts and look at the early church, they met from house to house, worshiping, studying, praying, taking communion together, to now, after this edict of Milan, we see great edifices and basilicas and cathedrals, these great structures dedicated to the worship of God, were now the sanctioned places approved for worship, drawing the people to a building. Faith stopped being a personal faith to some degree and started becoming a communal faith that even dictated many aspects of life. You can eat this now. You cannot eat that now. If you're married, you can have relations at this point. You cannot have relations at this point. It became a total dominating thing over the life of Christianity. And if you look back through church history, even the earliest of English translations, like the King James Version of the Bible and even before, there were those that died for their faith just to translate the Bible into a language common people could understand because this now political form of religion told the people that they were not able to or worthy to read the Scripture for themselves and they were not even allowed to own a Bible. 
This was a major issue. All of faith life, all of Christian life resulted around the church building, and everyone submitted to those in religious, political power. And even in the earliest translations of the Bible, when we look at the word church, it is the Greek word ekklesia. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That word church in the Greek language, the language the apostles wrote, is the Greek word ekklesia, which means assembly. It's the people. Jesus said, I'm going to build for myself a people, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the people. But when this political arm of Christianity, this dominating form of religion, began to authorize, that's why the King James Version says the authorized version, they authorized this translation of the Bible. They changed the word for church. They changed a translating it from the Greek word, which the apostles wrote, to using a common German word for a religious building. That's why it, it sounds like church, because it comes from a German word called kirch. I will build my kirch, not ecclesia. They changed it so that people would have an understanding that God came to build this political arm, this, this, this building, this religious institution, and that people would flock to these buildings, give their money, surrender their will and authority so that people could dominate and control. But Jesus didn't come to build a fleet of buildings. He came to build a people. And this influence has changed and affected the mindset of generations, even among those who have defected Catholicism, rejected it, different denominations, people still today cannot bring themselves to be comfortable with an idea that unless they're not meeting in a building on Sunday that's got a church name on it, that it's not church. We have people that have come who have visited but don't come back because they're looking for something more stable. What they're looking for is a group of people that meet in a building that they own. This is a mindset that was instituted in 313 A.D., and it's something we still struggle with today. God did not come to build a building. He came to build a people, a people who live as citizens of heaven, who live for the gospel, who are not ashamed of Jesus Christ. People today, I said it before, we shop for churches according to programs, certain styles of music. But the truth is, as believers, we don't go to church. We are the church. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wherever believers gather, that is the church. And the thing is, is that the church does not exist for us, which means we, we don't exist to provide a menu of options for, for people to choose from. No, the church doesn't exist for us. We are the church, and we exist for the world, to be the light of the world. It's a different mindset. We don't gather to be pleased. We don't gather to consume. We gather to be built up and strengthened and then be sent out to do the work of the ministry. But in our culture, our enemy, the devil, has distracted us with insidious lies. They get our minds and our hearts focused on every and anything other than who we are than what we should be doing in our lives, even in the makeup of our very own relationships. Not just our concept of what a church is, but even our concept of how we should live our lives from day to day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 35, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church of Corinth. He says, let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, that the time is very short. From now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage 
Those who weep or rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their, tra- or their possessions. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them, for this world as we know it will soon pass away. And I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him, but a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you, but I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. Now, it's easy to maybe get confused about what he's saying here. Paul is not saying being married is wrong. Matter of fact, earlier in the chapter, he says, if you can't keep your hands to yourself, get married. It's better to be blessed than to burn. It's rather to put your relationship under the will of God than to fall under his judgment. So marriage isn't a bad thing. It is a very good thing. It is a very good thing. But what Paul is bringing to light is that in this world, there are many distractions that are not necessarily bad things, but the tendency is, as humans living in this world, is that if we do not guard our hearts and work diligently to stay committed to the kingdom of God to the sake, for the sake of the gospel, prioritizing his will above our own, those distractions will become priority. They will become priority over God's will for us over God's will as his children. And what we do is we end up neglecting the very thing he has saved us and sent us to do. All of our time, all of our energy, our resources, and even our willingness is taken up by busyness. See, the reason why church ministry is difficult and why many churches that start from scratch do not make it in our culture is that we're fighting mindsets the devil has been using against us for generations. If the devil can't stop you from believing, he will make you so busy that you won't be able to fulfill God's will for your life. He will lead your heart away from what is great, from seeing souls saved, lives transformed, whole families changed, generations saved and and restored, marriages restored, things that will go on into eternity, treasures in heaven, Jesus called them. He will keep you from pursuing what is great only to pursue what is just good. And because it's good, we'll have a hard time recognizing the detrimental effect it's having on our effectiveness for the kingdom of God. Another negative result of the culture shift in 313 AD was there's a shift in understanding of whose responsibility it is to do the work of the ministry. In the rise of Roman Catholicism, the ministry was solely taken away from the people and placed solely in the hands of priests and church leaders, even to the point that the people were not, again, not even allowed to read the scriptures or really practice what is uh, written for them in the Bible. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, and this is a very important passage of scripture because he's talking about gifts that Jesus himself has given to his people, the church. There are certain gifts that Jesus has given to the church. In verse 11, he says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers, otherwise known as the fivefold ministry. Church leaders will operate in these areas at some point, uh, or, or giftedness in some area or all areas to a degree. Now, the thing we need to catch is what he says here in verse 12 about church ministry. 
He says, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Who is the there that he's talking about? Somebody throw it out. Who is the there? He says, their responsibility is to equip God's people. He's talking about the leaders, the pastors, the prophets, the teachers, the evangelists. Their responsibility is to equip God's people. Now, what is God's people's responsibility? To do what? To do the work of the ministry. This faulty mindset in 313 that began in 313 AD was that all the ministry laid on the shoulders of the pastors and teachers and priests and church leaders. When the Bible says the ministry lays on the shoulders of the people, it's the pastors, teachers, and leaders that are to train you to do the work. We have been working in backwards fashion. We live in a culture today where people just want to come, sit, soak, and consume when God says, I've saved you to send you. I've saved you to send you out, to make you a minister, to make you a light in this community. In verse 13, he says, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we'll be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. God's plan is to use this process, leaders equipping people, people doing the ministry, until all of us uh, achieve the perfection of Christ. So what do you think Satan's job and and what his uh, method, his scheme is to reverse the process? It's to keep us from growing up into who God has died, called, and saved us to become. The effectiveness is is weakened, it's diminished because we're relying on, on these people who we call leaders to do everything and the people are just saying, I'm just gonna come and reap the benefits. When we are full and complete to the measure of Christ, verse 14, says we'll no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown around by every kind or every wind of new teaching. We'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is head of the body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own work. And helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy, growing, and full of love. This is God's will for the church that we each occupy an individual part. We each serve. We each minister. And together we grow to be a healthy and whole body. Paul said leaders teach and train the people do the work. We've been approaching ministry all wrong in every church over the course of generations. And Satan has been loving every minute of it. We gather together in church to encourage one another on Sundays, to strengthen one another, but we will not be as encouraged as we can, as strengthened as we can, unless we're all doing the work God's called us to do, unless we're all using the gifts that he's given us. And Satan really uses fear, fear in a lot of ways that's robbed the church of many qualified Uh, people who could raise up into leadership, but he's given them so much fear that they shrink back. They become ashamed of of what God has gifted in them and called them to do, and they allow fear to rob them of what God could do in their lives, and they rob the church of the blessing of their ministry because they're afraid. In the New Testament, there's a church called Ephesus, and he writes an entire letter to this church 
We get a lot of doctrine talking about the spiritual war. There's a spiritual battle happening at every second of every day between Christ and the enemy. We're caught up in this spiritual battle. He's constantly scheming. The enemy is constantly scheming to get us out of the fight. And Paul tells the church of Ephesus to take up the whole armor of God, that you'll be able to stand in the evil day against the schemes of the enemy, to put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel of peace, to hold tightly the, the shield of faith and swing with expert precision the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You put on the helmet of salvation when you're saved, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But that doesn't mean you're girded with truth. That doesn't mean you're wearing the breastplate of righteousness. That doesn't mean you're walking with the shoes shod with the gospel of peace. And it definitely doesn't mean you're holding the shield of faith and slinging the sword of the Spirit. He encourages the church to put on the pieces of the armor so that we can stand, we can make our fight, we can take back ground from the enemy. That's intentional. That takes commitment. It takes all the pieces of the armor to stand against the enemy's attacks. And as he's teaching this church of Ephesus, this church was really a key church in biblical times. It was probably one of the first mega churches that, that we could look at in church history. And it's fitting that Paul would, in essence, christen this church as a spiritually warring church. However, as time went on, years and years went on, at the end of the last apostle's life, the apostle John, we discovered that this church, this mega church, this thriving church, this spiritual warring church, didn't keep all the armor on nor were they standing firm in the end. The last passage of Scripture I want to show you today is Revelation chapter 2. This is a letter from Christ to this church. As we're talking about reset, I want you to pay close attention to what Jesus says to this church, those who have gotten away from what they were originally called to do. Jesus says, write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. And I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those that they say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they are liars. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. This church... They were fighting evil. They were religious as religious gets. They were gathering together on Sundays. They had the t-shirts. They, they, they had all the things in order. They, they, they took a stand against people who were trying to sow wickedness in their community. They had all the stuff on the outside together. They were fighting evil. They were warring. They were slinging swords. But what did Jesus say was their problem? In verse 4, he says, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me? or each other as you did at first. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Paul said in Corinthians 4, 13, without love, I have nothing. It's in all the process of church, church attendance, serving, ministry, the church stopped loving Jesus. Can you wrap your mind around that? That a people gathered week after week after week. They talked, they studied, they sang, but they didn't love Jesus. And they didn't really love each other. See, I believe you can't really love people the way Christ wants us to love 
that we can't love others the way we love ourselves if we don't really love Jesus the way we should. And I know this is true in my own heart. There's, there's a time where I really struggled even trying to serve God, even as a leader in a church, trying to, trying to serve God and honor him when I didn't truly have love for people in my heart. I wanted to, but I didn't. I was so self-centered. I was only thinking about myself. And it took an act of God. It took a moment for him to radically rescue me from my own sins, my own brokenness, to give me a heart for people the way I know he has a heart for people. And it affected everything. Not loving people affected my ministry. I can go back and listen to messages that I preached and see how I was preaching to make all things right, but I was lacking love. And it ended up, after listening to the message, I felt more guilt and shame than I felt encouraged and embittered. Lacking love affects everything. And this is one of the areas that I'm trying to repent of, focusing more on uh, loving people than making people right, rather than having a critical spirit, having an encouraging word, an encouraging heart. Paul said that we're to preach the word in love in, in Ephesians. And I thought that I was loving people by just trying to correct what was out of order so that they could be blessed by God. But I ended up burning more bridges than I built, and I missed opportunities to help people encounter the love of God. If I have not love, I have nothing. You see, it doesn't matter what good you think you're doing what good you think you have, if it's not motivated by love, it doesn't mean anything. And this church was not motivated by love. John 13, 35, Jesus said, your love for one another will prove that you're my disciples. Love is the indicator. Love is the indicator that we are truly children of God. Our love for each other proves that we love Jesus, that we are his disciples. But if we're not loving Jesus, we won't be loving each other. If we're not loving each other, then we won't be loving the church and in turn not loving Jesus because the church is his bride. Jesus said to his church, you don't love me, you don't love each other. In essence, you are really religious but you're not living as my disciple. You're not living as a citizen of heaven. And if you're not living as my disciple, then really there's no point in blessing your congregation, so I'm going to remove your light and your church will be no more. He had a warning for them that because of this state, you're looking at falling apart, you're looking at failing. They were attending church, they were being religious, but they were living for themselves, for their own kingdom, not the kingdom of God. And it was about to cost them dearly. But look what Jesus says in his love and in his mercy in verse 5 to this church in Revelation chapter 2. He says, look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit, understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Get this with your heart today. Jesus does not want you to lose your light. He wants you to be the light, to be victorious, to be blessed. He wants to bless you. He wants to overwhelm you with his love. But in order to keep from losing the blessing of God on our church, of God on the church, he tells them, in essence, you need a reset. 
He says, you need to go back and do what you first did when you met me, when you first began a relationship with God. If you think about it today, think about how you felt the moment you encountered the love of Christ for the first time, how you were overwhelmed, your world was turned upside down. You had joy you never experienced before. You were hungry for God like a pit that could never be satisfied. You couldn't read the Bible enough. You couldn't pray enough. You couldn't get uh, to church enough times throughout the week, and when it was over, you had a pit in your stomach longing for the next week to come around that this was something that happens every time someone comes to Christ and you desire to be around the people of God to talk about God to sing his praises you took off work whenever uh, the smallest events or gatherings because there was nothing that could stop you from being close to God but if you've been saved for any length of time you know the longer you've been saved the easier it is to take the Lord for granted to coast into a self-centered faith where you live more for yourself and try to break away from spiritual entanglements rather than plug in to spiritual entanglements. See, when we're not loving Jesus and loving his church with the zeal and passion, we not only miss out on blessings, but we run the risk of falling away from the faith altogether. But Jesus says to this church, and I believe his word for us today is that I am not done with you. I have big plans for you, but you need a reset. You need a reset. You need to reset your thinking patterns. You need to reset your desires. You need to reset your priorities. You need to reset your focus. You need to reset your energies, and you need to reset your resources. And Jesus tells the church of Ephesus here, there are three things you need to do to do a reset, and we'll close. I believe these are things that we need to truly, as the, the church of Christ in our day, analyze in our hearts. Number one, he tells them, look how far you've fallen. Look how far you've fallen. This means take a personal inventory of your heart. Ask the Lord, God, search my heart. Be honest with your heart. Ask yourself today, do you love Jesus as much or more today than you did when you first met him? Are you more committed? Are you more hungry for him than when you first met the Lord? Look how far you've fallen. Take inventory. Number two, it says turn back to me. Turn back. Stop pursuing a self-centered life and start pursuing the heart of God. Seek to grow in your relationship with God. Stoke the fire in your heart. Turn away from busyness. Turn away from what's good and pursue what's greater. Stop pursuing status quo in this life and pursue the kingdom of God. Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 3.19 is the same desire that Christ had for the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. Paul says in Ephesians 3.19, may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. God wants you to turn back to him so he can swallow you in his love, to swallow you in his blessing. And number three is repentance. Repent. See, just as a married couple that's drifted away won't renew their relationship without a concerted effort and energy, neither will a reset happen in a church unless there's concerted effort and energy. You won't renew your relationship with Jesus without effort and energy. We need to renew. We need to repent. We need to turn again to the Lord. Repentance is not just changing your mind. It's putting feet to your faith. It's doing something different. 
is not continuing in the same path. Jesus said, repent and go back and do the first works, meaning repent and go back and start doing the very thing you did when you first met me. Go back and do what you did when you first believed. Be hungry. Be excited. Be willing. Be involved. Be committed. Be faithful. Be accountable. Be teachable. Be loyal. Be a servant. Be a hard worker. Be a leader. Be everything and anything Jesus needs or wants you to be. And don't stop until God calls you home. See, if we all pursue his heart together wholeheartedly, if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desire of a heart. He will give us himself. And that love, that amazing love that we can experience even now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. There's people here that need to feel your love. God, just pour it down right now in the name of Jesus. If we're pursuing his heart together, then we won't help it but allow it to overflow in our lives. And once a marriage is rekindled, it has to be maintained or that flame will go out again. And God has called you into a covenant relationship in the church, not to grow cold and ineffective over time, but to bring it to life and keep that light burning brighter, pursuing Christ in love and letting his love flow through you to others. See, the church is not about us, but we are about the church. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this place. The Lord said we need a reset. And I believe there are those of you here today in this room, you need a reset. You need a reset in your life. You don't know what the future holds. You don't, you don't have an idea of what you want to do with your life. You've just been hitting dead end after dead end. Right now you walked into this room today not even knowing what your purpose is. You need a reset. You need to begin by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to begin by becoming a child of God, by beginning a relationship with the God that created you, that breathed life into you, by turning away from your sins and turning toward his purpose for your life, which is to be a world changer, to be an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven, to be a light in this world. And if that's you here today, with every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, if that's you here today, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. Say, Pastor Joey, that's me. I need a purpose. I need a reset of my life. I need to trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior right here under the sound of my voice. As the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, just repeat this prayer with me, just aloud together. Just say, Father in heaven, forgive me of my sins. I need a reset today. So I'm trusting in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Accept his death on my behalf, and I trust in the power of his resurrection. Fill me with his spirit and empower me to live for you in the name of Jesus. With every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, I just want to pray for you. If you said that prayer, would you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor Joey, I prayed today. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. Praise God. Father, I pray for all those that raised their hand today. I pray, God, that even now your love would fall on them. I pray your Holy Spirit would fill them. 
that they would get that reset today, that their eyes would be realigned to the vision that you've spoken over their life. God, that you begin to clarify their purpose. God, that you'd help them to see themselves as the son or daughter of the Most High God and the value that is in their life, God. I just pray, Lord, blessings on them today, that, that you would just overwhelm them. Don't let them even fall asleep tonight without knowing your presence and your love in their life. And Lord, I pray for those here today that know the Lord, but their hearts have drifted. They've gotten caught up in the religion. They've been, they've been like me and, and others who have been caught up in these schemes and lies of the enemy that's caused dysfunction in your body, and they need a reset. God, I pray for them. Lord, I pray for every heart here today in the name of Jesus. Those that, that need a reset maybe in their faith and their relationship with you, those that need a reset with their, their, their commitment to the church and their involvement in the ministry. God, whatever it is, draw every heart. And as we stand, I pray, God, that they would come forward and pray. They'd kneel before your throne and receive that reset today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together as we go into a time of response. If God is speaking to your heart, now is the time to come forward. If you have uh, a need, a prayer need, I'll be down front. If you have a physical ailment, you'd like to pray for healing, we'll be down here. If God has spoken a word of encouragement to your heart, the microphone down here to share that, that word is available for you. But for the next few moments, let's just go into an, a time of worship and prayer and allow God to do that work in the name of Jesus. Come on.